Here we go, the symbolic unveiling. I'm so glad I shaved this morning. All right, hey, welcome. Glad that you guys are here. I love seeing people in the sanctuary here. I know if you're at home catching us throughout the week or um, later today or if you're live right now, I know that with all the stuff that's going on, the statewide mask mandate and all that, it just makes it less fun. Instead of just naturally, organically getting together and hugging and doing all the things that we do when we gather together as a body, now we've got to think about it. We've got to have wristbands. We've got to have social distance signs. We've got to have all these things that place barriers in the way of us just being who we are. But I appreciate your willingness to tough through that together and just try and make the best of it. That's what seems like that's what life is all about today is just trying to make the best of what we've been given. And we can either decide I'm going to be angry and mad and rebel and butt my head against it and be just upset about everything that comes our way. Or we can just do the best we can to just go with it, knowing that what happens ultimately here on earth is of very little consequence because we know where our ultimate goal is and our ultimate destination is. And that really ought to be where our eyes are focused. So glad that you're here. I hope that you take that to heart because as we study through the Word of God, we find out that that's been going on, situations like this, and the challenge to stay focused and keep our minds where they belong has been a challenge from the beginning of time. This isn't anything new, okay? We've never read about COVID happening before, but there have certainly been distractions even more dangerous and even more real in many ways than what we're going through right now. And the warning from God through his prophets has always been stay focused. Keep your mind where it belongs. Stay focused. And then we see when Jesus comes and his message and the final message that we see in Revelation is all just persevere. Hang on, I know it's tough. I know this isn't easy. Guess what? It's gonna get even tougher, but hang on. You sensing a theme all throughout the Bible? Stay focused, hang on, persevere. And if you think that through, there would be no need to be told any of that if it was just gonna be a rosy life. Why would we have to be told again and again and again to hang on, persevere, stay focused? if it wasn't going to be a struggle. God knew that it was going to be a struggle. And times like this bring that struggle to a boil. Those things we've gone through our life and we've just taken it for granted, many of us, me included, go through many days of our lives on autopilot. You ever get down at the end of the day and you look and you go, I have no idea what I did today. I just know I was busy. I used to do that all the time, but now I take things much, much more for granted. With this reminder, life's going to be a struggle. We have to persevere. So that's it for my, my editorializing at the beginning. But that's why I think it's so important that we study things like the prophets, like the Old Testament, and we really have an understanding that none of this is new. We see, in fact, from a couple weeks ago when I taught, it's, we're, so we're in Minor Prophets. Let me just go back before I even get started. We're in the Minor Prophets. We call our series Trey Asar, which means the 12. It's a Hebrew word that means the 12. And in this case, it's the 12 Minor Prophets. 
not the 12 apostles as you might naturally think. But the important thing about this is that these minor prophets, they call them minor just because their writing was very short and concise, not because it was any less impactful or important or any less a word of God. Very, very much focused for a specific thing. And we look at these prophets and they're giving God's warnings, sometimes encouragement, sometimes a warning coupled with an encouragement to persevere. So this is where we find ourselves. So now we go back to one of the scriptures in Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to last prophet. We'll talk about Malachi will be our last one. We'll probably be in Zechariah for two more weeks, those of you who like to plan ahead. There's so much in this one here. But Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10, reads like this. It's our first one we've got on the screen here. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. It sounds very... Benign, it doesn't sound like there's an awful lot there, but what this is is a declaration that in that day, that's the day of the returning of the Lord, the day of Christ on earth, the millennial reign. This is what he's talking about. In that day, finally, there's going to be peace, an everlasting peace. But until then, until that day, your every day is going to be a struggle in some ways. There are going to be very few days that we're going to ever encounter going all the way back to here that are just going to be peaceful days all the way through. Because when we find those days that are peaceful from a, from a fleshly or an earthly standpoint, that's when the enemy comes in. That's when the devil gets into your brain and starts stirring that pot because he doesn't like peace in your heart. So we have to guard against that. So this is what we're looking for, the day of the Lord where there will finally be peace peace. Now, every word of God is useful for helping us navigate this life that we're going through. Every single word. There is nothing that doesn't need to be there. And we're going to see as we go through this that there are many things. Now, this this Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, lived 380 some odd years before, not 380, um, 530, 530 years, thank you, Ann, before Christ. 530 years even before Christ, so 2,500 some, do the math, years ago, and we were being told to hang on, to persevere because there's a better thing coming. And we see that thread. We'll see that through the teaching here where there's a lot that is fulfilled either in the vision given to John during the Revelation or in the actual millennial reign of Christ, and we're going to see that. So as we go through and we read this, read it through the lens of a coming Messiah. Read it that way. Listen to it. Absorb it that way. It's so much more than just the focus on the temple. So when we, when we taught about Haggai, Haggai and now Zechariah, you see that they're just focused, it seems like they're just focused on getting the temple built. It's a building project. And they're being encouraged to, to keep going, keep building the temple. It's important that you build the temple. You would think that it's, it's too much focus on just getting a building project done. Two whole prophets and their majority of their writing is just about getting a project done. It's so much more than that, though. It's about preparing our hearts. The temple was the earthly, at that time, the earthly place where God dwelled among his people. But the reason it's important 
is because it's a precursor, it's a vision of what's going to happen when the temple of God is in us. And if they, if they can't stay focused enough and keep it together enough to work on a simple building project, how are they going to prepare their hearts for the Lord to dwell within them? So it's so much more than that. The other thing that I want you to look for as we go through this is that many times we grumble that we don't get what we ask for. We don't get what we think we deserve. A couple things, and you've probably heard this. It's almost cliche at this point. You should be glad you don't get what you deserve. But I also want to add on, you should be glad that oftentimes we don't get what we ask for. We're going to see how this goes terribly awry when these people ask for something that's not in the Lord's will. And he finally says, okay, you think you want that? I'll give it to you. See how that goes. We're going to see that as we go through here. So let's get going. We're dividing this into sections. We're talking about the visions that Zechariah received from the Lord right now. Last week we did the first four visions. This time we're going to do the last four visions. Now remember these visions come in the form of a dream to Zechariah. Many times a dream is a waking or a vision is a waking dream. In fact, most often we see that you're awake when you receive these visions. But in this case, it specifically says Zechariah was sleeping and received these visions in the form of a dream. So let's take a look. Lots of, sim- uh, of symbolism and, and things like that. And I'm going to do the best I can to, to kind of describe some of the symbolism because I think that's one of the things that can trip people up. If we're talking about what what is this lampstand and olive trees, what does that mean? If we just do a cursory reading of the Bible and just glance over it and go, I don't know what that is, moving on, we miss so much of the richness and depth. So without going too far into it, I'm going to try and describe some of these things and help to bring a picture to life of what's being described here. So it's Zechariah is literally describing what he saw, but what he saw was symbolic in many ways if that makes sense. So we're going, to try and, we're going to try and dissect this. Let's jump in. The fifth, this is the fifth out of eight prophetic visions. The fifth prophetic vision. You might call it or your Bible if you're following along. It's Zechariah chapter 4 is where it starts. Uh, it might be subtitled, The Gold Lampstand and Two Olive Trees. That's what we're going to see here. So here we go. The first scripture, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me. So he's, he's sleeping again. As a man who is awakened from his sleep, he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts, belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Okay, he's describing very vividly what that might look like. Now, where it says he roused me as if a man to make it awaken from his sleep. What I picture is Zechariah standing there. He's been giving this visions. Remember, this is the fifth vision. He's already been given all these visions. I imagine him just sitting there like with his mind in overload. Like, what am I looking at? And he's just kind of sitting, and the angel's got to like tap him and go, look, here's another one. Okay. And he's, he's kind of shocked out of his... Let me show you a little vision. Now, this a little picture. This is not necessarily what it looked like, obviously. But it's just kind of something to, to use for your mind. You've got two olive trees, some pipes going from the olive trees into the bowl. 
And then you've got the lampstand with the seven candles. Now, that's symbolic of a menorah, so it may look more like the traditional menorah that we see. It may look like this. Descriptions are different. So this isn't exactly, but it's probably fairly close to the vision that he was given. Okay, so here's what we have. These seven lamps, these seven candles or lamps, represent the seven churches. Now, what are the seven churches? You'll have to go forward, another teaching or one I've already done. Go back and read Revelation, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, and it talks about what these seven churches are. In fact, many of these visions and things that we'll talk about are again seen in Revelation. So you can go back and read that if you, if you want to catch that another day. From here we go on, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. I'll read this one to you. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Okay, that's significant. It sounds like, it sounds like one of those throwaway scriptures. What are these? I don't know. You don't know what these are? No. Here's what, again, what it paints this picture of me, of, of Zechariah. You ever had somebody walk up to you and ask you something, and your, your mind is so either overwhelmed or you're thinking about something else, and they say, what time is it? And you go, what's time? It's, it's Tuesday. Oh, wait, time. You mean time on my watch. You know, <laughs> those simple things that should be obvious. And this should be obvious to Zechariah because Zechariah is not only a prophet, but he's a priest, He's been very well and fully trained in this. So seeing a vision like that, he should have gone, oh, that's the olive trees and the lampstand and the olive tree. He should have known all that. But it's just the humanness of all this where he is kind of overwhelmed momentarily. And the angel has to say, are you serious? You don't know what this is? But the angel tells him, which is great, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying... Did I miss one? Nope. Saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone which, with shouts of grace, peace to you. Okay, this is specifically there just to encourage Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel is the king, or He's the king of Israel, but he's not called a king because he was put in there by Cyrus. So he's, he's essentially the governor of this area. But he's essentially functioning as the king. This is encouraging to Zerubbabel because he's saying it's not your power. It's not anything you're going to do. It's my spirit that's going to do this to you. And this ties back into, the, into these trees in the following scriptures, Zechariah 4, 11 to 14. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right side of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, that's a deeper picture. We could do a whole message just on those two anointed ones. Zechariah probably would have heard the two anointed ones and probably thought that it was, was Zerubbabel, the king, and also Joshua, then the high priest. He, his mind probably would have thought that immediately that's what they were talking about. We'll find out later that's not exactly what that represents. 
In verse 12, where it talks about um, the two olive branches beside the two golden pipes, that word olive branches actually translates as a Hebrew word, shaboleth. And what it means is ears, like heavily laden ears, picture like an ear of corn. What it means is that this olive tree is not just random fruit or maybe it's kind of barren or anything. It is heavily laden and the olive fruits are hanging like in these big clusters. So it is very, very abundant and it is just ready to bring forth the, the oil that it offers. And the, and the imagery here is that these trees, these olive trees are going to be offering a constant, never-ending supply of oil to the lamp. Okay, and remember, the lamp then feeds the seven churches. So what it means is that these two olive trees are going to be delivering the power of the Spirit to these churches through the lamp and through that, that mechanism right there, but it will be a never-ending supply. Now remember, olive oil created for these people at this time created both light and it was used for food. So light and food much like the gospel of Jesus. It's a representation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Remember, he's saying that these two trees are my two witnesses. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Those of you who remember my teaching in the series of the book of Revelation, remember the significance of, of that amount of days, 1,260 days. You can do the math and see the significance there or read Revelation again. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and the church. It's the idea of dual fulfillment. We see that all the time when we start talking about imagery and visions, the idea that it could be fulfilled today, something that's going on now, and then also later. It doesn't have to be one or the other. In this case, the Jewish vine and the Christian branches are another bit of the imagery that's going on here. Now, theories about who these two anointed ones are go deep and wide. Zerubbabel and Joshua, as we talked about, Zechariah and Haggai, a couple of prophets, Peter and Paul, New Testament, Moses and Aaron could be. I believe if you want to go back and read Revelation 1 again and go through, or better yet, go back in the archives and listen to the series on that, I believe that it's Elijah and Moses. Now, it's not important necessarily for our theology unless you want to get into it, but Elijah and Moses possessed a lot of the, uh, a lot of the attributes that it talks about in Revelation. So, Moving on, let's get into, now that's the fifth prophetic vision. Let's go into the sixth. Now, you're piecing together a picture here of what's happening, an abundance, this lamp and the trees that are filling it, and the Spirit of God is going to provide everything that these churches are going to need to continue to thrive and to continue to sustain. But it's do not rely on yourself. The lamp and the trees, the olive trees signifying the life of God and the spirit of God are going to give you everything you need. So, sixth prophetic vision. Moving on. This one is subtitled, The Flying Scroll. Sounds very mystical, right? Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Then I lifted my eyes again and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and it's width 10 cubits. That's huge, okay? 
20 cubits by 10 cubits is about 10 feet by 15 feet or so. It's probably, it's probably um, way too big for anybody to actually hold and unwind. It's probably laid out and maybe rolled out like a carpet on the ground at this point. What this is, this is the scroll of God's judgment against them. And you never want to see that, a scroll that has to be that big in order to contain all of the judgments of God against a people. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 3, if you want to read that, 1 Kings 6, just remember, talks about the dimensions of the reading court, this outer court where the scroll was opened up and read. And the dimensions of that court match the size of this scroll. So it's an allusion to this scroll is going to be read against you. That's how we know that it's the accusations that are against the people that's going on right here. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 3. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. Let's look at that for just a second. Steals steals is a big word. It's not simply just taking something that doesn't belong to you. In this case, they were doing that. They were stealing the building materials that were being provided to them to rebuild the temple. They were pilfering those building materials to finish their houses, to upgrade, do all the things that had happened after 70 years of captivity. Their houses needed a lot of work. They couldn't just run over to Home Depot and get what they needed. But there was a constant supply of materials and money coming in from King Cyrus of Persia, who was paying and financing to build the temple, but they were pilfering that and spending less time on the temple. They were stealing what belonged to God. And so it's much more than just literally those those, um, temporal items, the, the wood and the building materials. It's our time, it's our heart, and those things that should be focused on God, we're allowing them, or even in some cases facilitating them, being stolen away. Zechariah chapter 5 uh, no, I already read that, sorry. Judah, so the other part about stealing, here's the other thing they were doing, this false witness that Judah was doing. They were, they were listening to all their enemies that were surrounded them, all the different kingdoms, Moab and everybody else who surrounded them. They were listening to all these false prophets that were coming from there. So bearing then false witness. So they were not only bearing false witness but they were stealing. You know, it says on one side and on the other. So one side of the scroll, what that indicates, by the way, that's that's when you would do a title deed or any kind of a legal document in those times, you would write on one side of the scroll. The back side of the scroll was reserved for amendments, so to speak, if you wanted to do that. So this phrase, and we see it again in Revelation where the scroll is written on both sides. What that means is it has been written. Here's all the information. Everything has been amended, if you will. There's no room for any other information. It just simply means this document contains everything you need to know or ever will need to know. It's, there's no room for any more. This is what they're talking about. We see this in Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. They talk about that same scroll with both sides written on. Zechariah chapter, four, uh, chapter 5, verse 4 I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it 
with its timber and stones. Okay, now he's saying this, this scroll is what he's saying here, but it's the truth. The truth that's written in there, that's what's going to go forth. And what this is really alluding to is probably, remember Passover from all the way back from Exodus 22, the destroyer who went from house to house to house, and the only ones that didn't go into and do its business was the ones with the blood of the lamb over in other words, this, this angel that's going to go house to house in this case right here is not offering forgiveness at this point. It's judgment. The seventh prophetic vision, moving on right here because we've got to keep on going to get through these things. The woman in ephah, okay, might be your subtitle here. And ephah is a basket. It's a, it's a basket. It's about a five-gallon or so, we would call it, bushel basket and not a bushel's a measurement. It's a five-gallon basket that was used to not only to carry goods and things, but it was also used to measure out your portion of grain that was allotted to you. It was used to measure. So Zechariah chapter 5, verse 5, Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up your eyes now and see what is going forth. He's saying, okay, focus. Look what I'm going to show you. Zechariah 5, 6, 7. I said, what is it? And he said, this is the ephah going forth. Again, he said, this is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. I tried to find a good image to show you what's going on, but there's this basket, five-gallon basket. It's not very big, okay? But this basket has a lead cover on it, okay? This lead cover, some... some um, Commentators say that it's about a 125-pound lead cover, so it's very, very heavy. Lift up that lead cover, and inside the basket is a woman, okay? And the weight of this lead cover has been crushing, kind of pushing down on her. So this is what we see going on right here. It represents the portion of Judah, of the kingdom of Judah right there, of the blessing, a portion of the grain harvest. Now, Zechariah was probably expecting when he saw this, he would have thought, again, being a priest, he would have seen that symbolism and thought, this is our portion, this is our blessing, this is what we're going to receive, because that's been a pattern all along. Remember, in all of these uh, Old Testament prophecies we've seen is that they would say, here's the judgment that's coming your way, but... God is going to restore. So you see the, the judgment, and then you see the restoration. Zechariah is probably thinking, this is what's coming his way, but surprise, that is not at all what this represents. The woman here represents the sins of Israel and this weight crushing down on them because of that. We'll see this same woman again in Revelation chapter 17, if you want to go ahead and read Revelation 17, they call her at that point, they call her the great prostitute of Babylon. We know this is the same woman because we'll see in a second what happens to her and where she goes. But the sins of Babylon were contagious. Remember this time that they spent in Babylon in exile? They had caught it. They had caught that bug of sin and idolatry and they had brought it back with them. So this is what's happening here. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 8. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. In other words, again, surprise. He thought it was going to be his blessing. It was far, far from that. Zechariah 5, 9. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked. 
Now, listen to the symbolism that's going on here. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there two women were coming out of the wind in their wings, out with the wind, I'm sorry, in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. So these two these two women come down, they swoop down, they've got wings like a stork, they grab this basket that's got the woman in it, representing the great prostitute of Babylon, and fly it away. This is what happens. It's important when it says things like wings like a stork, that we think that through. It's not just a big bird. That's meaningful. We see that that uh, imagery of storks being an unclean animal. Remember that? If we go all the way back to Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, outlay uh, or lay out, here's, here's all the clean birds and here's all the dirty birds, the ones you can eat, the ones you can't, the animals you can eat, the ones you can't. And storks are listed as an unclean animal. And so from that, we infer that these two women with wings like a stork, these are demonic forces protecting their charge. They've come down and they've said, we're going to take her and we're going to take her away. This is what happens. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. We've got it on screen. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? Then he said to me, to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set on it there on her own pedestal. Shinar, if you remember going all the way back to Genesis, Shinar is is another, it's an old-timey name for Babylon. So they're going to take this woman to Babylon and they're going to set her up for worship, to be worshipped. So, again, we're going to see her again in Revelation 17 and 18. If you want to go and read that, you can read more about what happens there. But this is all a vision. He's being shown this sin, the sin is not going away. It's being moved somewhere else, protected very carefully, set up to worship, and it's going to be a problem until Jesus returns and deals with it once and for all. The eighth prophetic vision, okay, this is the last of these eight visions, could be called four chariots. Again, a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism here. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Now I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Okay, these two mountains in this image right here are Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives, two very prominent mountains. He calls them bronze mountains. They're, they're a large portion of rock. They're very sturdy, strong mountains, but he's talking about in, in the image here, these are, these are symbols of strength, symbols of power. And between them, this valley, this valley, we see it later in Scripture, this very same valley called either the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Kidron Valley, this is the scene where the judgment in Revelation happens, where the battle happens. We'll we'll see that right there. Again, another message. You can go back and check out the series on Revelation if you want to catch up on that. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 goes on now and describes what these horses are. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, 
What are these, my Lord? The angel replied, These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth with one with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, while the dappled ones go forth to the south country. There's a lot of imagery there in terms of the reason they don't say east and west is because you're dealing with deserts and there's nothing that happens there. What's important here is to look at what these mean. These are all agents of God sent to exact judgment on their people. Okay, by the Lord of hosts. Remember, the Lord of hosts is commander of all armies, both heavenly and earthly, all armies. The red horses is, is a symbol of war and bloodshed. Okay, we see that, that strain go all the way through Scripture. The black signifies the consequences of war, so death and famine and, and pestilence that comes with it. The white now symbolizes the return of comfort and peace. And prosperity, the mixed one, though, the dappled, it says, the mixed color, signifies a time of unsteadiness. And we see that through here. They'll have a great king for, for a decade or a generation or even for a year or two in some cases, and then there'll be an evil one, and then a good one, and an evil one. These uncertain times, much like we experience every four years in our country, creates this place where it's just hard to feel settled. You're always looking at what's happening next, what's coming next, and it leads to an unsettledness in our spirit, which again is why that scripture I opened up in, in those days when the Lord returns, we'll be able to sit under the olive tree, under the vine with our neighbor, and just enjoy life. No more unsettledness. But until then, that's, that's what we deal with. All right, now listen. Here's where it gets really good. I was hoping to save uh, a bunch of time to deal with this. I love this part. This part here is so cool. So listen to this. If you haven't listened to any of this before, you can listen later, but listen to this now. Here's where it gets good. I call this the bonus vision. All right, so it's four visions. This is kind of a bonus, like number 8A. And it's a symbolic crown that's given. So listen to this. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 11. Take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, so he's saying in the midst of all this, and it kind of seems like it doesn't really fit with what's going on. Take silver and gold, make a crown. Here's an image of what the typical high priest, no, the other one. Can you give me the other one? That's the image of what a high priest's crown looks like. Now, this that says... Um, God is Lord on there, a little inscription. It's fairly straightforward and fairly, um, it's ornate, but not as much as a king's crown. But that word where it says ornate tells us something different. So here's an image of the, of the king's crown, the other one, much more ornate. Now there's purple and there's red. Scripture doesn't really tell us what color it is. Purple was typically the color of royalty, whereas red was often the color of the, of the kings, of the, the, the minor kings, which is what uh, Zerubbabel would have been right here. So we don't know for sure, so i just show them both to you. Why is this significant, though? This is extremely significant. This is a moment that we need to really look at right here. What's going on? The offices of high priest and of king were always separate. 
You have a high priest and you have a king. And they have always been very deliberately kept separate. In fact, the last, the last king that tried to intermingle these two offices was King Uzziah. Anybody remember at all, trivia question, what happened to King Uzziah? He thought that as king, it was well within his authority and power to go into the temple. He did that, immediately contracted leprosy, and died of it later. Did not work out well at all for King Uzziah. So here's a question. Here's a trivia question for those of you. John, I know, and some of you at home might think about this. Which office between king and high priest was instituted first? Priest, I'm sure some of you out there are saying the king. Let's think about this. The first high priest of Israel was who? Anybody know? It was Aaron. Good. Look at the big brain on you. First high priest was Aaron, brother of Moses. This was about 1500 BC or so, okay, when this happened. Now, Israel had no king at this point. They had no king at all until actually about 500 years after that when Israel had its first king. So yes, so the office of high priest was instituted first. In fact, God's plan was not for his people to have a king other than Christ, other than God, Yahweh himself. He was meant to be our king, our higher authority, but the nation of Israel said, hey, why do all of our neighbors get to have kings and we don't? We want what they have. This was a common problem with them. God said, here's the blessing that I give you. Here's what I want for you. And they said, but, but they have something different, and we want that. But they were told very, very clearly that having a king over Israel was not what God wanted for them. That's what pagans had. That was a pagan institution. Read 1 Samuel chapters 8 and 10 if you want to see more on this because it's such a cool story. But they begged, they begged for a king, and God finally gave in to them. Now, the last time, I'll talk about that more in just a second. The last time that the office of high priest and king were one together, remember, it did happen one other time in history. Anybody remember what that was? Well, I'm full of all kinds of trivia today. Melchizedek, remember a guy named Melchizedek? We don't see an awful lot about him, but we do know that he was both priest and king. Now, this was about 2000 B.C., so even well before Aaron, technically. Genesis 14, 18 says this, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. So he was a king and a priest. Now this name, the name Melchizedek, I won't go too deeply into that, but it's one of these kind of shadowy sort of figures that we see in Scripture that we don't talk about him an awful lot. But his name says a lot about him. Melech, the Hebrew word Melech, which is the root of his name, means king. Sedek means righteousness. And then it says, again, of course, the priest and the king of Salem. The word Salem means peace. So he is the the king of both righteousness and peace, okay? Hebrews 7.2 actually calls him that in the New Testament, the king of both righteousness and peace. 
Moving on now to Joshua. Joshua is the high priest. Joshua is the one who was who's being anointed or talked to here. His name, Yehoshua, means the Lord is salvation. That's what his name means. Joshua's father's name, which it talks about here, Jehozadak, means the Lord is righteous. So you could take Joshua's name and kind of loosely translate it here as God's salvation, son of righteousness. And he's being anointed here as king, or at least we're seeing that, that foreshadowing. Okay, now this doesn't actually happen here. It's a symbolic moment for him. But it also foreshadows then the coming of Christ, which will be both our high priest and our king. So now, listen or follow along in your Bible. Again, I use the New American Standard. If you want to follow along, you can do that. Yours might read a little bit differently. I'm going to read the last four verses of this chapter, of this vision that we're talking about here. I'm going to read it to you. And in that, listen for prophetic truths, specifically about a coming Messiah, right? So just listen and try and absorb what's going on here. This is Zechariah chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne, and a council of peace will be between the two offices. Now, the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, to Bahiah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. There's a lot there. You'd have to kind of see it in print to really follow along. But did you catch any of the truths, the prophetic truths about a coming Messiah? Let me highlight them for you here really quick. Number one, he will come from Israel. We get that from verse 12. He will build a millennial temple. That's verses 12 and 13. He'll rule in glory from 13. He will be both king and high priest from verse 13. He'll bring everlasting peace also from verse 13. He will invite Gentiles into the kingdom. That's from verse 15. He'll prove and fulfill the promises of God. Also verse 15. And then the last one, he will come only once people have obeyed his commandments. That's eight truths. In those four, in those verses right there, eight different truths, prophetic truths about a coming Messiah. So much, again, so much depth in all this. But when the Messiah returns to begin his reign, here's the thing. Our loyalty needs to be in the right place. Like these people here are being told, your loyalty can't be with gods from other nations. Your loyalty can't be in, in your provision, in your job, in whatever it is that you're relying on, unless that thing is reliance on the Lord God himself. That is where our loyalty needs to be in order to and when the Messiah returns. See, God's plan was always to be among his people, but through our stubbornness and our obstinance, obviously going all the way back to original sin, 
of Adam and Eve in the garden. But ever since then, and every day since then, people have rebelled against the simplicity of just walking with God in the garden and said, I want more than this. I want this idol. I want this thing. I want what they have. I want something different than what I have. And it's always been a problem. And God's repeated attempts to keep his people focused on him and him alone have not always been effective. Even to the point where the people eventually demand a king, just like their enemies had. They're our enemies. They fight us all the time. They enslave us. They do all these things. And we want what they have. This is what they're being told. And they knew full well that having a king meant subjugation, not freedom. It meant the opposite of freedom. And they were told that, and they knew it, and they still demanded it. Let me share with you a couple of scriptures from 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is from verses 7 and 8. Now remember, Samuel was a prophet. Well, before that, the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. In other words, they've literally rejected God from being their king and said, we want an earthly king. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Lord's basically encouraging Samuel saying, hey, don't worry, it's not just you. They're doing it to me too. Samuel explains now to the people. people, He goes to the people who have been demanding a king. And he says, you know what this is going to mean for you, right? You know what, if you get what you ask for, you know what that's going to mean, right? And he goes on and he lists it out. Let me read this to you. This This is several verses, but bear with me. So Samuel tells the people, He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before the chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of of thousands and of fifties, and some to do plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive trees and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. After all that, instead of them going, maybe we don't want a king. What's their response? Bring it. We want a king. These guys have kings. And these guys always seem to be better than us. They always seem to be beating up on us. And they're over there partying and living the high life while we're trying to scratch out an existence here. We want what they have. See, they wanted to be both God's chosen people under his umbrella of protection, and still be a part of what the world had to offer. Live like those who were not God's chosen, trusting in protection that they could see. Maybe they just wanted a human body walking among them that they could point to and blame as the source of all their problems. 
taking the focus off their inward trouble. Now, here's what I want you to take away from this. Like them, oftentimes in our lives, we look at what other people have and we want that. We look at other people who are maybe not, they're not making the effort to get up and spend time in church every day, every Sunday, or every day. They're not making the effort to love their neighbor when it's difficult to do that. They're not making the effort to to do all the things that we try to do to follow God, and yet they still prosper. They still do all these things, and it's so easy to say, then why, what's it worth to do all this when we see them, in many ways, visually doing better than we are? Here's what I want you to know. You are God's chosen. Like them, you are God's chosen. We are grafted into the vine of Christ. So all these scriptures about God's chosen people apply to us. We are clean and righteous in the eyes of God. Will we, will you receive that and live your life that way? Or, like them, will you live your life in a way that puts you in to slavery? Voluntary slavery to the things of this world if we place them over the importance of God in our lives? This is a question that only all of us, we have to answer that ourselves. There's no one that can answer that for you. But before you decide, I want you to listen. It's not just me saying this. The Apostle Peter says this about God's people. The last verse I'm going to share with you, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellences of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's talking about you. And like them, are you going to live that way with our focus on the Lord or are we going to pursue the things of the world and keep ourselves in slavery? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the freedom that you offer us, the freedom that you have always wanted for us, that your heart ached to give us that freedom, and yet we continually, time and time again, place ourselves back into slavery, ignoring the freedom that was offered. Sometimes it's our choice, and Lord, sometimes it's the enemy tempting us and showing us the sweetness of what captivity looks like. Lord, let us not be deceived by those things, those things that would keep us captive. And let us keep our hearts and our eyes focused on you and the freedom offered to us by Jesus. Lord God, I thank you. I thank you for that freedom. And I just pray that I am able to see that every day and make the choice, like Paul says, between death and life. Lord, I want to choose life and I choose you. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray that. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together. If you haven't grabbed your communion supplies, they're on the back table back there. If you're at home or wherever you are, grab your supplies right now. And let's just take communion together in celebration of what Christ did for us. When Jesus gave the bread to the disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. 
And I think it's important that we remember what it means. It means freedom. It means freedom from bondage, freedom from sin. We have been set free through the sacrifice of Christ. And if you accept that freedom and accept that sacrifice, then take the body. The blood of Christ is simply, as Jesus describes it himself, the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant that he will be our God and he will be among us. His spirit will be in our hearts. We we are never alone to make decisions on our own or try to navigate this life on our own. But through the blood of the new covenant, we receive not only everlasting life, but the Holy Spirit who is our guide through these days. If you accept that, take the blood. Now, as the worship team plays on the last couple songs, if you're here in-house, we have prayer team in the back who would be happy to pray with you if you need prayer for anything that's on your heart, on your mind. If you would like, we have the crosses. At the crosses, we have the cards. We used to do this. We're doing it again. We have the small cards, and you can write a prayer request on those cards. Pin it to either cross on either side. We will gather them together, and pastors and and prayer ministers will pray over them throughout the week. So if you'd like to do that, you can. If you want to just sit there and just soak in what the Lord has for you, it's a good time to do that too. Thank you, church.
Will you rescue me? 